all you do, choir. Thank you for all of those who serve in our church in small ways and big ways. Every week, this bottle of water is sitting here. I think I know who puts it here, but I don't know for sure. It's just here. Um, this card is here for me. This card is here for me every single week. There are folks who are sacrificing every week to sit in the balcony uh, to make room on the floor. There are volunteers sitting at that desk and that desk. Uh, he just gave me a thumbs up. Thank you, Nathan, uh, for that. But um, uh, who, who do their jobs, life group leaders, um, so many people. Um, somebody asked me this morning, I said, hey, what do we need to do for baptism in the fellowship hall? We want to help with that. Let us know what we can do. He also said, hey, I hear there's a tree that's down in the trail in the back. Uh, could I come with my chainsaw and cut it up? And I said, yes, you can, you know. And so, uh, but just, that, just goes to say, we have something really special. And uh, thank you to the Lord for putting your hearts here who want to serve, who want to do, uh, and ultimately, who want to do it, not for me. Uh, this bottle of water is not for me, even though I'm going to drink it. This is for the Lord, and you guys serve God with your hearts in ways that are just humble and unseen, and thank you. I appreciate that. Choir, thank you. The word amen means, yeah, thank you, buddy. Uh, the, the word amen, <laughs> it means uh, it's a word of confirmation. Uh, it has a meaning. Uh, it comes from somewhere, and the word amen simply means it is so or so be it or simply yes, a word of confirmation. And so I asked myself this morning, how is it that y'all are able to sing, uh, the, the, let the face of God to shine upon us? Let God be for us and to follow that up with the word amen. It is so. How can we have such confidence in that? I want to read to you a verse from the Corinthian letter in, chapter tw in verse 20 of uh, 2 Corinthians 1. Here's what it simply says. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, that is the Lord Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen back to God for his glory. It is God who establishes us with you or with one another, you might say. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and he has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a what? As a guarantee. Is the face of God toward us this morning? If you're in Christ, uh, the answer is an absolute amen. He is, whether it seems like it or not, whether life is treating you well or not, whether you're on an up or a down this morning, we have a confirmation, a seal, a guarantee that is given to us by none other than God alone. And so amen to what we've worshiped God with already. I ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel in your Old Testament. The book of Daniel is probably a familiar book to you. It contains so many of just the tried and true accounts of Scripture that we teach from childhood on up. And um, today we come to the second part of verse 1. And we'll start in verse 8. Actually, we're going to read from verse from verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, but we're going to focus on verses 8 <clears throat> through 21. I don't know if you heard the storms last night. Um, I usually don't. I usually sleep through storms and trains and all kinds of stuff, but last night I woke up to the storms. At our house, it was loud and thunderous, and we woke up this morning. There were leaves and 
the ground was wet, uh, evident that a storm had been here, and that thunder sometimes, the lightning is beautiful, but the thunder would just, or just shake your bones. And I want you to imagine this morning that such a noise happened that, that you heard the earth shake and your windows rattle and in the night, and you woke up the next morning, and it wasn't because of a storm. It wasn't because of a weather event. It was because there were foreign enemy troops on the ground, and, and the, the, the noise you heard was the battle of the, the trampling warrior, the battle tumult, as the Bible describes it. And all around us, for some reason, somehow, no, don't know how they got here, how our defenses were violated uh, in, in this country, but here they are, and they're right here in our area around your house. And as you drive into church this morning, you see that there, there are enemy fortifications, and that there are personnel, and that there are vehicles and armament all around and as you make your way here to the church, you see it's blockaded. Nobody's getting in to church today. And at the houses along the way, you see something your mind will never forget. You see that young men, 15, 16, 17 years old, that you know from this place, teenagers from our student ministry, those who uh, serve on the stage here at times, those who are serving today in the balcony, boys, the best of us that you know are being dragged out of their homes, still sleepy in their pajamas, loaded up until you can't see them again in, in, in a personnel carrier and hauled away you don't know where. You don't hear about them. You don't see about them. You go to their parents, say, what happened? We don't know where they are. They've been taken. Can you imagine the sadness of that? Can you imagine coming here and, and the enemy has ripped down the cross from behind the screen there? They've taken it down and dragged it through, taking it back to their own home base. The cross on the top of the steeple, they lifted up something, got up there and chopped it down and tore it through. It's done with. The treasured things of your household are gone, taken, put in the treasury of some foreign power right here in the Poplar Springs community. This is what happened in the days of Nebuchadnezzar and the days of Daniel. The Bible says that they took these boys into captivity, that they took some of the treasured things, the vessels of the house of God, they took them away and put them in the, in the treasury of, of Marduk, a false god of the Babylonians, as, a, as almost a victory lap. Look how weak Yahweh God is. Look how we defeated him. We're going to take, take all that matters to him and put it in our own treasury, uh, under the heading, uh, under the, the, the palatial structures of, of a false god. It's ours there. And if you ever wonder who won, if you ever wonder who's stronger, just look there in our treasury, and you will see what's, what was once sacred to you, captive and lorded over by a false god in Babylon. That's where we find ourselves today. And let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 1. And as we do, think of the desperation, the defeat that they would have felt. And think of the question, what, what is God doing? Is God who he said he is? When I sang amen a few minutes ago with such gusto, is that really true anymore now that our precious things have been 
taken. Verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Who did this? The Lord had, had something to do with it, didn't he? This was the Lord's plan. He is sovereign over this. He could have prevented it. He could have reversed it. But in the sense of this text of Scripture, the Lord actually was behind it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them, that is Nebuchadnezzar, he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. Marduk was his name, Nebo and other gods, but the primary one was Marduk, to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Just a slap in the face. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, a chief official, if you will, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful and all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Bring these young guys, the best ones you can find, the good-looking ones, the, the ones of good stature, pretty smart ones, bring them over, and you start teaching them our ways. We're not only going to take the vessels uh, the ornamentation, the, the, the sacred things of the house of God, and toss them into our treasury. We're going to take their sons, the best of them, 15, 14, 16 years old. We're going to carry them over too, and we're going to transform them into good little Babylonians. They're not even going to look like themselves when we're done with them. Teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate or from the king's own table and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. All of their names had once uh, meant words of praise to the one true God. And now they're changed to words of adoration of these false gods. Their very names were changed. Verse 8. But Daniel, who? Daniel. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Notice a lot of others did eat the king's food, didn't they? He's the only one. A lot of others just went right along with it. Or the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs, the chief official, to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the use who are your own age. So you would endanger my head with the king. What he's saying here is if you don't eat what the king gives you 
And then the king sees that you're weaker, skinnier, paler, you know, worse off than the others. He's not going to be happy with me because I did this and you're going to endanger my head. So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to drink and water to drink. I believe this word vegetables here has, has, has more to do with what sprouts from the ground. It wouldn't have been merely vegetables. It would have been fruit and grains, even breads perhaps. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, a special diet. If you just test us and give us water and vegetables to drink, then let our appearance and the appearance of the other youths who eat at the king's table be observed by you. And you deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. That gives me a little hope, y'all. Fatter in flesh, right? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar would have loved me, right? I mean, it's just, just, <clears throat> just kidding. Uh, they were fatter in flesh. That, that doesn't mean fatter like we might think of fatter. It means fuller, or, you know, more robust. They were healthier. Fatter in flesh and all the youths who ate the king's food. That was a miracle of God, by the way. I don't think we're going to get into that in the sermon, but it wasn't because they were eating this diet. They were fatter in flesh. God did a miracle. The whole book of Daniel is about a miracle, a, a God who is able to perform miracles to do what ought not to happen. What ought not to happen when you're eating vegetables and drinking water is you're more robust and stronger. What ought not to happen when you're standing in a den of hungry lions that haven't been fed is that uh, ought not to happen is that they don't eat you. What ought not to happen when you are thrown into a fiery furnace which was so hot that it killed even the soldiers who drew near to throw you in, what ought not to happen is that you ought to survive that and that there ought to be a fourth man standing in there with you, that there's not even the smell of smoke or the appearance of that upon you. That's what the book of Daniel is about. In this case, this is the first small miracle. He looked at them, and they looked better than all the other ones. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these youths, verse 17, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. Who gave them? God did. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, a supernatural gift. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. This is no light matter. This is a big day, a fearsome day. If you can imagine all the trappings of it, the noises of it, I mean, you, you can see that if you, if you think about it. <clears throat> he brings them before the king, <clears throat> and in every matter of wisdom <clears throat> and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Ten times better than the other youths? No. I mean, certainly. But ten times better than all of his other advisors, through all the kingdom, these Hebrew young men. <clears throat> and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That was 66 years until Cyrus was king. Daniel outlived Nebuchadnezzar. He outlived the Babylonian empire. King Cyrus was a Persian king. 
Daniel was still there. God's voice was still there. When all of this power had passed away, the Lord reigns. Amen? He reigns and he lasts. He is forever. He does not change. What do we need to know about living for God when it's not easy? I don't have much time. What do we need to know about living for God when it's not easy? There are three lessons we're going to look at today. The first is this. There is power in one person's faithfulness. There is power in your faithfulness to God, even if you're the only one who remains faithful. Who among all of these youths, this nobility that was taken from Judah, who among them was the only one, singular, who said, you know what? I'm not going to defile myself with this food. I don't know why the food was defiling. <clears throat> we, could, we could guess about that. There are several guesses, that, but nobody really knows. I, I, if I had to guess... I would say it was because it was sacrificed to idols. <clears throat> it was sacrificed to false gods before it came to the king's table. And Daniel decided not to defile himself with that. We don't know the answer, but whatever the answer, something about the food was a transgression to Daniel, a spiritual offense to God. And Daniel says, no, <clears throat> I'm not going to eat that. And it was he alone who did it. He stood alone. It's not easy to stand alone, is it? I mean, we're afraid to stand alone. When it's just us against so many others, I mean, it's, it's terrifying sometimes. I was in high school. I had the, the job one day of carrying the, the flag around the football field, the big flag that said East Ridge. It actually had, had a big E and a big R on it. <clears throat> and every time somebody scored, we were supposed to carry it around the, the whole track, and we did. It was my turn. <clears throat> we were playing Saudi Daisy High School that night. Saudi Daisy is one of those places where the boys are tougher or the girls are tougher than the boys, if you know what I mean. Um, and so I carried that flag around there, and I got to the little pod with cheerleaders there, and those cheerleaders jumped on me and attacked me viciously. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. They beat me. They, they elbowed me. <clears throat> they threw me on the ground. They took the flag off the pole, ripped it off, took it up to the top of their bleachers, and threw it over the fence in front of everybody. I came out of there bruised and scraped and humiliated, but also kind of glad I got in the cheerleaders, you know. But uh, anyway, <clears throat> I looked across the field to see where my friends were, the others who were a part of that little team that I was on. I looked over there, gone. None of them were, were helping. Nobody came to help me. In fact, I didn't see them again for the rest of the night. They fled from my presence. I mean, it was a huge embarrassment and humiliation. It stinks to stand alone. We hate to do it. But Daniel, in this very moment, <clears throat> against all odds, against the might of an empire, maybe scared to death, stood alone. He was all by himself. <clears throat> Not even the other religious people did what he did. I, hope you, I, wanna, I want you to learn something from this this morning. It, our standard of holiness, our standard of faithfulness, is not based upon what other religious people around us are doing. The kids at your school who happen to go to church, what do they get away with? What do they permit themselves to be involved in? Well, then I'm good enough too. The people at your work or in our culture who profess to be Christians, we do not measure ourselves by them. It's okay if sometimes we have to stand alone. Daniel was not special. He was not a pastor, was he? He was a kid. He was just a, just a kid there. He didn't have a title. He didn't have a position. And students and adults alike, I hope you know this morning that the future of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ does not rest upon pastors. 
And I hope that you're not depending on your pastor or your pastors. I hope you're not depending on us to be the future of the church. It depends on people like Daniel and people like you who do not hold the title, who may consider yourself small, who may be with odds stacked against them. It is your faithfulness in a sinful culture, a lost world that matters, just like Daniel. He had every reason to be scared, and there he stood all alone. I want you to know this morning, in the hand of God, there is no act of obedience that is small and insignificant. Even if you have to stand alone, there's good news. If you feel this way, if you feel small and singular and alone, then you're just like Daniel, this champion of God. Your obedience matters this morning as you go out from here. And just like Daniel, God can do big things with a small person like you, with a small person like me. There is power in one person's faithfulness. But secondly, we are not alone in our obedience. We are not alone in our obedience. Matthew, you just said there's power in standing alone. Well, Daniel wasn't truly alone. I want you to look at verse 9 with me, if you will. Verse 9 says this, As Daniel stood, God gave, didn't he? God partnered with Daniel in his obedience. That ought to just amaze us, that the God of the ages would see our faithfulness and would come into that and partner with us. Daniel said, not knowing the outcome, that he did not want to eat that food, and God gave favor to Daniel. The favor was a gift to Daniel, but the work was done in the eyes of the chief official, wasn't it? The work was done else. You know God can give you favor by working somewhere else? He can give you favor by working in the the mind or the eyes of your boss. He can give you favor by working the, the, the life of your spouse. God can do amazing things when you decide to be obedient. And he does that here. He gives Daniel favor, but he worked in this official. Proverbs 21.1 says this, The heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And this chief official was no exception to that. You don't get to be a chief official in the court of the king emperor of Babylon by being a pushover. And this would have been a fearsome guy. This was a capable guy. He got there, <clears throat> and he's a powerful man, and yet the, the Lord gives Daniel favor. And all of a sudden, this guy says, well, let's talk about this for a minute. He understands, he listens, he has compassion, he has favor because of what God has done. God loves to use underdogs, doesn't he? He loves to use underdogs. I love the football games we see sometimes when it's a big team playing a little team. Georgia won 45 to three yesterday, is that right? Beat poor old Ball State. I mean, uh, that's what we expect though when it's the University of Georgia versus Ball State. And we expect big teams to win against Little teams, my team, UTC in Chattanooga, my college, the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, uh, subsidiary of the, of the big campus, I got a chance to play an exhibition game against UT, the University of Tennessee <clears throat> at one point. Supposed to be just kind of, hey, let's have a little fun. We know you're going to lose because you're little, uh, but we're going to get together and do it anyway in a spirit of goodwill. They came down to Chattanooga and played on, on our field, and guess what? UTC beat them. 
I mean, a hum- they went back home in humiliation, right? <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was terrible for them. It was awesome for us. We all loved it. I love when the underdog wins. And that happens from time to time. God loves an underdog because it allows him to display his glory. It's, that was my strength that did that. Because there's no way that you and I can accomplish the mighty works that God will do through us. We don't have the goods to get that done. And so when the underdog prevails spiritually, God says, listen, there's more to me than you imagine. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, uh, back in 1850 was lost in his sin and walking in a snowstorm, a blizzard called the snowpocalypse of 1850, as it were. He was walking down his town and the, the storm was beating against him. It was frigid outside. And for survival, he turned down an alleyway and in that alleyway was an open door where the, the, the uh, primitive Methodists were having a service. He said there was about 15 people in there, if that. And the pastor stayed home because of the snow. He couldn't get there. And they're all sitting around. Nothing was happening. And finally, some dude from the service stood up, came up to the pulpit. Turns out this man was like a cobbler, a shoemaker, uh, a, a very small stature guy. And he preached a simple sermon from Isaiah <clears throat> Chapter 55, here's what the sermon was based on, just a part of a verse. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, period. That's not even the whole verse. But the guy got up and he spoke those words and Spurgeon said he, could, he carried on for about 10 minutes and you could just tell he was struggling and got to the, quote, end of his tether. I mean, he, he just didn't have anything else to say. He was about to sit down and he looked at Spurgeon sitting down there as a young man. He said, Young man, you look miserable, he said, and you will be miserable for this life and for the life to come unless you turn to Christ. Spurgeon, awakened that day, was saved in that place, became a preacher of preachers, well-known today, did more good for God's people. God used him powerfully. Many were saved and many more preachers respond because of Spurgeon. What? No because of some unnamed guy in a Methodist church in a snowstorm who wasn't a preacher who stood up. Yeah, maybe he was small, right? Maybe he was small, but God came along in his obedience and matched it. God came along and worked there. God loves working through the underdog. When following God leaves you feeling alone, when you feel that the forces of the world are bigger than you, I want you to never forget this morning that he is alert, he's watching, he's aware, and he is able to do what we cannot do and to work in ways that we cannot see as a partner in our obedience. Nobody knows what happened to that shoemaker. He might not even know what happened with Spurgeon. He may have gone on to eternity having no clue the impact of his sermon that day, but he stood up and he did what he could, even though he didn't have a title. You are not alone in your obedience. God can take the small things that you guys do. He can take the little things and he can make much of them. But lastly, God's purposes are bigger than us. His purposes are bigger than us. Look what happens in verse 19. The king speaks with them. None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, don't miss that, the king of Babylon inquired of them, and he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in all his kingdom. 
And Daniel, the one who stood alone, not Hananiah, not Mishael, not Azariah, but Daniel, the one who stood alone, was there until the year of King Cyrus, 539 B.C., 66 years. You might look at this story and say, this is a story about food, isn't it? I might say, this is about food. You might say, no, pastor, this is about something bigger than that. It's about defilement, you know. Daniel didn't want to be defiled. And somebody else might look and say, no, this is about more than that. It's about not giving in. It's about faithfulness. It's about something larger than, than food, certainly. But the Bible puts it in an even greater perspective than that. This is about God placing in the midst of the Babylonian court a mouthpiece for his glory. And this is about God putting right there in the midst of that someone to speak for him in the, in the middle of the enemy camp. God is doing something much greater than we can imagine here. Don't approach what God calls you to do as if it is a small thing. We do that sometimes, don't we? I've done that recently. I was in my backyard and saw some wasps, you know, moving around and looked out to where they were and I saw... Eventually, their little nest, just a tiny little beginning of a wasp nest up there. And there were no wasps on it at the time. So I thought I was going to do something really bright. And I just reached up there to grab it. You're just going to pull it right down. After all, it was vacant, you know, nobody was home. The wasps were not there. I reached it up to, and wasps came out from behind that thing. they, They started going after me and pursuing me, zinging me the way that they do. I thought it was small. They thought it was big, right? (laughs) It was a big deal. There was more there than I could see with my eye. And I approached it as if this was a minor thing, as if it's something little. And all of a sudden, I found out different. We often approach things in our lives like they're minor. What's it matter? What does this issue matter? Who cares if I obey God in this small thing? After all, it's very little in the grand scheme of things. God may not see it as little. In fact, God may see your obedience as something he wants to use to accomplish something great. The Bible says this in Isaiah chapter 46, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. God sees the end when all we can see is what's right in front of us. We see a small obedience staring us in the face, a small matter for us to follow him in, something inconsequential, something trivial. And God says, no, I'm going to, I see the end of this. I'm going to do a mighty work. And so now what we have at the end of this story is there in, in Babylon, where we thought the vessels of God were dragged away and slung in a corner, when we thought the children of God were hauled off and wasted there. God says, no, I'm not wasting that. No, this matter of obedience, Daniel, is not a small thing. I'm doing something big. And for 66 years, who was the chief advisor to the king of Babylon? God's man. Would that have happened without the siege? Would that have happened without the sorrow? Would that have happened without the loss? No. All along, God was working. Would it have happened without the risk? It was a risk for him to stand there and do that. Would it have happened without him choosing to stand alone? 
Would it have happened without the favor of God? No, God is working all of this. And where there would have never been a chance for the voice of holiness, for the representative of Yahweh to have the ear of Nebuchadnezzar or of Cyrus, kings of Babylon and of Syria, mighty emperors of that land. Now all of a sudden, because one man said yes, there is a chance of that. And in fact, God has made it a reality. Life is not about small states when we're living in exile. It's not about small things. Everything you do, every choice you make, every act of obedience matters. And God wants to do magnificent things through people like you and me. 3104 Poplar Springs Church Road. This little church right here on this corner, like we talked about earlier, a whole group of people is going to have the word of God because of what you did. Something small, something here, God uses miraculously. Are you looking for what God is doing? Are you watching? Are you listening for what your part is it is in it? And are you ready today to obey, even if to you it doesn't even look like it matters? Why don't you offer him your full faithfulness and see what he does with it? Let me pray for us today. Heavenly Father, this morning we are grateful for your kindness and for your word. Thank you for trusting that to us today. Fathers, we walk as exiles. We are mindful today that we follow one who was the ultimate exile. The Lord Jesus himself did not stay where he belonged in heaven, but came and walked this world with us and for us. And nobody looking at his life would have thought this is going to be a big thing. Little Mary and little Joseph and little baby going to dirty places and weddings and kneeling with prostitutes and sitting by the well side with those who are of little consequence. People may have looked at him, God, and said, this is a small, small life, but you were using it for our salvation. Father, thank you that you take these things and do mighty works with them. Father, I pray today that you'll help us to be an obedient people to want to walk with you, to want to trust you, to never see our, our part as small when it is partnered in, when it is empowered by the very King of Kings. Father, help us to go where you lead, wherever that may be, and to praise you for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, and as we do, I invite you to respond.